Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you, Lord, and we come before you rejoicing. We come rejoicing in you who made all things, in you who you are the creator. Uh, You have made uh, every part and every uh, everything in the heavens and the earth, and you are God over them all. And we come recognizing that you are in control, that you are working out your plans for your glory. And we come, Father, rejoicing in the good news of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we indeed do come to worship, and we are continuing, even now, to worship you, Lord. Because right now, our hearts and our minds and our souls, and though we may not be physically bowing, and perhaps maybe some are, but we come to seek your face, and we continue to do that as we go to your word. And may we continue to do that as we turn to your word. And Father, we come also waiting upon you. We know that we don't know all the, the workings out and, and of how all, what all this means, what's going on in our world. But we wait upon you. We trust in you. You are our hope. And we look to you and we pray that, Father, as we wait upon you, that you may even deliver us and, and deliver many, that during this time that many would even see their own desperate need for Christ, for you, the one for whom they are made. We pray, Father, that you may do that work even now as we have uh, this time to uh, listen or watch or to be here and to hear your word preached. And so may you work, Lord. And we pray that as you work, let heaven and earth praise Christ. And so bless our time. Prepare our hearts to receive all your good word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, if you are just now joining us, here, whether it's been you know online, you have been watching our uh, live Facebook live uh, streaming, or you have gathered here over these last few months, or uh, you have been with us here uh, following along as well. We have been over these last few weeks and months. We have been walking through, as uh, Dennis said, the Gospel of John, and we are still progressing through this gospel now. And so, what we have seen in this gospel, we've already seen wondrous things. And so, some of the things we have seen, I won't go through all of them, but we have seen the Word, and we have exalted in Him. We have seen the witness who points and directs you and me and everyone to the Word. And last week, we also saw the water turned into Wine, And so Jesus, he has begun his ministry here in the Gospel of John. And his disciples, they have already 
seen great things. And they will see greater things even still. And so will we (laughs) as we walk through this gospel. And so will you as we walk through this gospel. You remember what Jesus, uh, or what Jesus said to Nathaniel in chapter 1. Uh, he said, uh, told Nathaniel, you will see greater things than these. And that is just what we should also expect as we continue through this gospel. We should expect seeing greater things, and we will continue to see greater things as this gospel progresses as well. And so now then, this morning, we continue in the Gospel of John, in, God, in, in John chapter 2. You can go ahead and, and begin turning there, if, if you like. We should have those on the screen as well here in a minute. Uh, where God, John chapter 2, it, it kind of it confronts us a little bit. If, if your view of Jesus is mainly that he is a mild and meek person, or merely mild and meek, well, you're in for a surprise with John chapter 2 here. And so we do worship a mild and meek Savior, but He is certainly not tame. So He is described as a lamb appropriately, but He is also described as a lion. And this morning, what we see here is we will see the zeal and the heart-exposing manner of this temple-raising Christ. And so, let's turn then to John chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses 12 through 25. And so, ready yourself there at home uh, for the reading of God's Word. That means you may need to, you know, quiet something, or uh, turn this or that off, or, you know, whatever it is. Let me just encourage you to ready yourself for hearing the Word of God. And even now, taking on a demeanor of, I want to know what God has to say to me from His Word, and preparing your heart. And even though you may not be here gathering with us, you can do that at home. And so I want to encourage you, do that even now, um, as you come and as we come to read and to hear from God's Word this morning. And so may God bless the reading of His good and purifying word. After this, he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the, Jew, of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. And so the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, 
And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So hopefully, here, as I read this passage, you saw what I meant just a moment ago by saying that Jesus is most certainly mild, but he is certainly not tame. Jesus is serious about right worship. And that is not what we see here. We don't see right worship going on here. Now we find out that as we begin this passage, that following the water being turned into wine, the first sign, which is the first because there will be more signs to come, Jesus, he and along with his mother and brothers and disciples, they went down from Cana to Capernaum, uh, traveling that would generally be around 16 miles to travel. So just think about that. Things as you read your Bible that you just kind of need to recognize that there is actually quite a bit of distance here that would have been traveled. They didn't have cars, but they did this. And then shortly after doing this, we are told that Jesus goes to Jerusalem to do what really countless others are coming to do and gather to do as well. They're coming to celebrate the Passover. So this would have been, uh, interesting enough, near the end of March or the beginning of April. So right where we are right now. So if you recall from the Old Testament, the Passover, it was a festival celebrating when the people of Israel were delivered by God out of Egypt. And so they really had great reason to rejoice and to praise God for His having chosen them, having set them apart among the nations. And so, if you remember there in the book of Exodus, a plague of death came upon the land and killed the firstborn throughout the land. But, the Israelites had blood over their door. So, I'm not going to get into it here, but remember John chapter 1. Behold the Lamb of God. And so, they had blood over the doors, and with blood over the doors, death and God's judgment passed over the Israelites. Hence, Passover. And so, they're coming all around to come celebrate the Passover feast. And so, let's, let's take a moment here, though, and, and kind of imagine 
what Jesus would have seen in coming into all this. Kind of put ourselves in his shoes here. So, at this time, he would have come up to and come to Herod's temple. So, this temple had taken about uh, 46 years to build. And it would uh, be added to for even years to come. And, but, only, I think, was it six years later, after it was finally all completed, it would be utterly decimated in AD 70. So, I mean, talk about this grand temple that was made and it is just finally finished and then it is wiped out. But it, it, was, it was truly magnificent, this temple. So it was so magnificent that the rabbis even admitted it was beautiful. So they weren't necessarily a friend of Herod. And this is what they said of the temple. He, uh, so it said, they say this, he who was, has not seen the temple of Herod has never seen a beautiful building. So even they recognized this was a building among buildings. And so this is what Jesus is coming into. And as he does, uh, the outermost court of the temple was for Gentiles. And, and so there was various courtyards as you would get closer to the temple. And the outermost courtyard uh, was for the Gentiles. And this is the court that Jesus enters in here. So he comes in, and as he enters, really all is kind of going on as business as usual in respect to how they have been doing it. People are talking, and they are discussing prices for various animals. The money changers, you see here in, in the passage, they are converting money for a fee for, to the approved Tyrian coinage. And so it's busy. And it is a noisy place as he enters in the outer courtyard here. The noise and the smell of various animals fill the air, as you can imagine, along with everything that comes with animals. And then over there, somewhere, are the Gentiles, the non-Jews. They're doing what? They are trying to worship God. And so Jesus enters in to this setting, this picture. Just really, if you saw him coming in, he would really just be another man among really everyone else is that, uh, everyone there else there. And as Jesus looks around, welling up in him is a zeal that consumes him. And so he makes up a whip and the noise that was so apparent a moment ago is shattered by Jesus. He drives everyone and everything, animals and people and all out, hence the whip. You're not getting animals out of there without a whip. And so he, he is causing everyone to get out of the court of the Gentiles. And so he takes the containers of the money changers and he empties their coins on the ground and he grips the tables and he flings them over. Would that get your attention in the midst of all this? And essentially he says, how dare you take these things away? Do not make my father's house a house of trade. 
So we see Jesus is serious about right worship. And we see that worshiping God is not trite. Worshiping God is not trite. It is not commonplace. Yet, this is exactly what Jesus finds here. The holy God and the worship of His Father would be treated as trite. Commonplace. Jesus would come and be the literal embodiment of Psalm 69.9 where if you want to, you can after uh, this sermon... But there, David is being opposed for worshiping God aright. And now, there in Psalm 69.9, it says, Zeal for your house will consume me. And now here is the the new David, the the fulfillment of David, the Davidic king whose uh, zeal is coming to consume him, both figuratively and will be literally. So Jesus, he, he comes here in this passage and before all these people to expose hearts. He exposes worship gone awry. He exposes a number of things here. And the first of these is Jesus comes and he exposes our distorted worship. He exposes our distorted Worship. So, rightly and righteously, Jesus is angry here. He is not walking in sinful anger. I mean, how easily we do that. I mean, it doesn't take much uh, between us walking into and and walking quickly into uh, sinful anger. But here, this is not the case with Jesus why we very quickly fall into that sinful kind of anger, Jesus rightly and righteously is angry and is indignant over worship of God being seen as a small, insignificant thing. They were acting as though the holiness of God was just really like anything else. I mean, how many of us, though, do exactly the same thing? I mean, you need not be here. Like, on Sunday mornings, even when we were gathering together, to distort the worship of God. God, He made all things, and as such, He is to be worshipped in all places, everywhere. Yet, this is not the case. Worship has been distorted. People, they go about through their day without a thought of God and they gladly distort worship. I mean, we don't just sin because we're like, man, I I hate sin and so I'm going to do it anyway. We do it because we take joy in it. And so people are going around and saying, oh, well, you know what? He cannot see me 
So I'm going to just go about my day as though he doesn't. Oh no, he, he does not know. He, he cannot know what I am doing. I mean, there is no one else here around, so he doesn't really know the things I am doing right now. Oh, you know, well, he won't really hold me accountable for those things that are done behind closed doors when I am looking at my computer screen and no one else knows what I'm looking at. He won't hold me accountable for that. Oh no, he, he is, you know, he's not really in control. I am. I'm in control. I mean, this is my life. This is my world. And these are my plans. And he will have no part of them. And you know what? He will. And you know what? He is. And he is this very moment demanding that you take note that this is his world. He's he's essentially saying to us, you have lived under your delusion that you are in control for long enough. Now it's time, world. Be humbled and repent. And so Jesus exposes our distorted worship. But Jesus also exposes our distracted worship also. As God was to be worshipped in this outer court, it was a place for Him to be worshipped just as much as, as you proceed forward. People though, what were they doing? They were going about their business. They were buying. They were selling and even while the Gentiles were standing there trying to worship God. No! This is my Father's house! And this is the Father's world! You and I did not make it. And there is no sphere of our lives upon which He does not say, Mine! Yet, the world goes on as though this is not so. We provide room for our idolatries, our sin, our lusts, and our distractions. And I know you may be sitting there and you're thinking, well, it's technology, that's what it is. Well, it may be, but it need not be. It may be work, but it need not be work. It may be books, maybe movies, maybe music, but it need not be those things. It may be education, school, or learning, but it need not be those things. They're not inherently causing the distraction. It may be fear over money, fear over tomorrow, fear over our broken bodies, fear over a virus coming into our bodies fear of death, but it need not be. We have gone about busy and distracted, but now we are being forced to cease going about that we may be humbled and silenced. 
I think that the call of God in these days is be still and know that I am God. And I have sent my son to save you. And for what purpose? Well, here we see also the sum of Jesus' exposing our distorted and distracted worship. The purpose behind it. So Jesus is exposing our disposition towards worship. Our disposition towards worship. So as we see here in, in these verses, we see our necessity our own necessity to examine ourselves. I mean, they had, they had accepted a distorted and distracted worship and the question before us and you is, have we? I mean, have you? Now, you may be tempted here to, to back away and look out and say, well, you know what? Look over there. That, that church over there, they're the ones that are distracting people from worshiping God. Or how about that one over there? They're the ones that are distracting people from worshiping God. But this is not the way that we are to respond to this passage. Jesus is calling us to look deeper than that. He is calling you and I to set our lives on the table. And He is asking us to ask the question, have I made worship trite. So consider how you worship. Consider how you worship. And really, this is, this is just the time to do this. I mean, you, you wonder about all, why all this is going on. Well, I can tell you this is one reason. Just the time where you know, you may have avoided silence before. You, have, you may have avoided being alone. I know some people that do that. Making themselves busy with all kinds of things. Because it requires you to ask what's going on in here. In your heart. It requires you to answer questions that perhaps you're very uncomfortable answering. You've avoided the question, what will I do when I come before the God who created me and all things? Well, hear God's call for you. Right where you are, wherever you are. Examine yourself. Ask this of yourself. do what, in fact, is not going to happen here in these next verses. So as you do examine yourself, see also here that the one through whom you are to worship, that we are to worship God through Him, through Jesus. So the Jews here, they approach Jesus these next verses in 18 and so on. 
They approach him. They have witnessed all that he did in the temple. They saw that. I mean, that was apparent. What he did, I mean, you couldn't have not seen it. And actually, rather appropriately, they inquire about why he did all these things. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, if someone came into this church building and they began turning over pews through this pulpit over, I mean, you would want to know, like, why did you do that? I mean, so it's, it's not outlandish that they're asking him, like, why did he do these things? They were to ensure that people didn't just come in and do as they please. But that's also kind of the prob- part of the problem here, isn't it? Their inquiry of Jesus is not concerned with why such a thing would need to happen. They would have known this outer court is not set aside for buying and selling and exchanging and all these things. But that's not their concern here. They want to know on what basis would Jesus come and do it. It was wrong what was taking place in the outer court, but that was not their concern. There was no twinge of self-examination here and just simply asking, well, maybe, just maybe, we, we should ask the question, like, is this okay, what we're doing? But that's not, that's not what we see here in what they say. Instead, they ask, what sign do you show us for doing these things? So it's, it's more of a question of authority than of purity. They're not wanting anything to do with pure worship of God. They're wanting to know what right do you have to come in here and do these things. But Jesus, He comes nonetheless with true authority. He comes with true authority. He tells them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Well, they take this to mean the literal temple, but Jesus is making a much bolder statement than that. He's referring to Himself. Why? Because here is the glory of God among us. Here is Him who has taken on flesh and tabernacled among us. Chapter 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here He is! And so Jesus comes to replace the temple. Through Him, people would come to know the Father. Through Him, they would be indwelt by the Spirit of the living God. Sounds familiar? Let's back up a bit. There in Genesis was the Garden of Eden where God, what? Dwelt among them unhindered. And Adam and Eve, they worshipped freely. But, after Genesis 3, post-fall, no one is worshipping freely anymore. God, He commands that a tabernacle be built, and there, 
God's glory would come down and dwell and fill the temple. And it wouldn't be a free worship. It would require a payment regularly. A sacrifice must be made. You cannot come before God without something dying or someone. And then there was the temple where God's glory dwelt, but still sin hindered the worship of God. A price must be paid. Well, now here is Him who would come as the glory of God among us. It would be His house that would be consumed for us. And it would be His temple that would be buried and it would rise again. And through Him, you may worship and all your sin and debts and guilt would be atoned for. Price paid. It would not be through Herod's temple, nor through these buildings, nor through cathedrals, nor through mosques, nor through a myriad of other ways that we devise false worship for ourselves, but it would only be through him, the God-man, the hope, the life, and the salvation would only be found in him. No one else. So, consider through whom you worship. Consider through whom you worship. If it is not Jesus that you are worshiping, it is not before God that you are bowing. It is something or someone else. Jesus has come to bring you to the Father. Only Him. And so, don't delay. I mean, cease looking. And you are. If you don't know Him right now and you're listening to this, you are looking. Well, look to Him who is able and to Him who can and will save you, who calls you to repent and believe this Savior who really is the Savior. But here, how vital it is that we come in these final verses of chapter 2. And these may not be easy for you. But we need to hear them. It would seem that these verses right here are good news. So you may have read that and like many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Many believed. Now, I mean, at first glance, we'd have no reason to, I mean, to not rejoice at that. I mean, that, praise God. I mean, yes, more follow Jesus, more come to faith in Christ. We would have no reason initially to doubt their belief. But, instead, here we see the frightful contrast between true and vain belief. You know, I remember as a new believer going to youth camps 
in Oklahoma. I wasn't a youth then. I'd come to faith later in life. But as a youth volunteer, I went and, you know, I personally was in awe and deeply moved by the sermons that were preached at these camps. And I was amazed as many, even thousands of youth, they gathered together to come to hear the Word of God preached. And I remember, you know, almost every night seeing hundreds or even more uh, youth come forward that over the course of the week, uh, you know, even more would go down the aisle to receive Christ. And I was just amazed at this. And, and by the end of the week, we even had 50 of our own students within our, our youth group who went forward to receive Christ. I mean, the Lord is at work. Now, I'm not saying all of these, of course, are, were false or that they were all feigning belief or all mixed up in kind of just an emotional high. Or they were having a kind of feigned sort of faith. But, you know, I was shocked and saddened over the next week, and the next month, and months, and years, and even, even now to see many of those same people defy all those things. Vigorously turned back to the world, and they went about as though nothing whatsoever happened. Christ did not change them because they never knew Him. And like I said, that may not have been all of them. Perhaps some of them are needing just to simply repent. But like those here, they believe but didn't believe. They believe but didn't believe. And why, why do I say that? Well, because Jesus knew. He knew what was going on in their hearts. But Jesus, it says, on His part did not entrust Himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. These people who had believed had feigned faith, and Jesus knew that. He knew it was not real, he knew it was fake. And what did he do? He did not entrust himself to them, is what that passage says. And there are those who have believed in everything, uh, but have not given themselves truly to Christ. They believed the miracles, but not Him. There are those who, and perhaps you may be one of them, they have believed, but not believed. So you could list off what you believe for me. You know, I believe that Jesus is the God-man. You know, I believe that He lived a sinless, perfect life. You know, I believe He died and was buried and rose again. I believe that I even believe any and all who trust in him will be saved. Yet you haven't done that. You believe but don't believe. It may be that you are amazed at the church. It may be that you are in awe of the Bible and the knowledge and wisdom and power found therein. You are in awe of at the offer of heaven or terrified at the thought of hell. You're even amazed at Jesus that you haven't trusted in Him. Well, let me tell you this. Jesus will entrust Himself 
to those who truly trust him. The other day I was, you know, talking to or with our second oldest, uh, Elizabeth, our child Elizabeth, um, just about these things. And so I, I asked her, you know, do you know how to trust in Jesus? And, you know, very honestly, and uh, as she does, Elizabeth, she said, no, Daddy, I, I don't. And so she uh, wondered then, how, how can I come to faith? Well, I'll tell you what I told her. Unreservedly and wholeheartedly entrust yourself to Him. That is, cast your whole self upon Jesus. Throw yourself upon Him, every part of you, your yesterday, your today, your tomorrow, your heart, your mind, your body, and your soul. Give it all to Him. Believe that He died, was buried, and He rose again for you. And run to Him in repentance and faith. Indeed, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And here and now, or there and then, right then, you will be your beloved's and your beloved will be yours. And then, Jesus will do what He said He would not do for these. He will entrust Himself to you. So may it be that you and all of us will respond to God's word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we seek you, Lord. We recognize that this passage is challenging and it should be. Jesus was serious about right worship and we see and say that right worship is only found through and in Christ. And wherever we are in hearing this message in respect to as we are and even examining ourselves now, just pray that if, if the person hearing this, that they would respond, whether it means by bowing there at their, their chair or their, uh, their couch or wherever they are, and just simply letting you, Lord, examine their lives. Examine their heart and worship in all the ways that we've seen here in this passage. Distorted worship. Distracted worship. Their disposition towards worship. We just ask, Father... Right now, you would do your work and everyone listening and everyone here that you would help them to receive your word and apply it to their own lives and hearts and minds. If there's anyone listening who, or here who doesn't know Christ, pray that you would lead them to Christ. If it's been a feigned belief, there is no safety in saying, I've been wearing my mask, I'm going to keep wearing it. The only safety is running to Jesus to save them from their sins. And so may they do that. Pray, Father, for your working. May you help us all to respond to your word now in Jesus' name.
Amen.